everyone. This is Kina Wolfenstein, and you're listening to the Complex Trauma Recovery Podcast. Thanks for being here. Before I introduce today's guest, here are a few show notes. If you enjoy my content and you want to support my work, there's a few ways that you can do that. Please consider leaving a good rating or review on the podcast platform that you're using or subscribing to my Patreon. My Patreon grants you access to bonus content, including all my writing, workshops, and other educational videos. The support for my subscribers makes it sustainable for me to produce the podcast and continue to put out the free work that I do. There's also an option to reply to the podcast episode and let me know what you think, so I'm always happy to hear your feedback. My link tree will be pasted in the podcast description below, so there you can access my Patreon, other resources that I have, as well as my practice website. We do have a therapist currently at our practice accepting clients in Texas, and I will also have space for a couple new clients starting in the new year, so you can click on my link tree or go to strongrootpsychotherapy.com. Uh, I am currently preparing to test for my LCSW. Actually, it's coming up probably by the time you are hearing this. It's just a little bit away. I am testing on November 20th. So cross your fingers for me. Wish me luck that I will have my LCSW by the end of the year. Um, But I I have that coming up. I have a trip coming up. So I'm going to be taking a hiatus from the podcast for the rest of the year and then picking it back up in early 2024. I will be continuing to post on Patreon during that time. Finally, uh, you may have heard my previous episode, little show announcement that I lost access to my TikTok. It is super, super sad and disappointing. I put so much work into it. Um, My TikTok has been, you know, kind of my primary social media account. So I do have a new TikTok account that I'm trying to build up. Uh, The link is also in my link tree. The username is Kina CPTSD therapist. So if you're on TikTok and you want to give me a follow, that would be great as well. And those are all the announcements. So let me introduce today's guest. Today's guest is a fantastic therapist named Julianne Taylor Shore. She goes by Jules. She practices in Austin, Texas, um, where so many great therapists seem to be. And she is a specialist in memory reconsolidation and experiential therapy, but she really focuses on interpersonal neurobiology. So relationships, attachment, boundaries, all kinds of really great stuff. So we had a wonderful conversation all about interpersonal neurobiology and memory reconsolidation. Um, there were some issues with the sound so my husband slash editor had to do like a bunch of editing to get the the sound levels to be even so hopefully it sounds good there might be a couple spots where it's it's a little off but it should should be um enjoyable so thank you all and i hope you enjoy the episode okay thank you so much for being here jules oh thank you so much it's a delight to be with you so could you just start us off with talking a little bit about your work, your passions, and um, what you've been focusing on recently in terms of memory reconsolidation and relationships? Sure, sure. So I am a therapist in Austin, Texas, and uh, some of my practice is, is just out of my private practice. Um, a lot of my work with clients at this point is intensives. So folks come in and they do 20 hours of work with me uh, to sort of help move work forward. So I do a lot of that work at this point. And then I also teach interpersonal neurobiology and, and thinking about how we can um, use uh, advances or deeper understandings that we're, we're finding out about our neurobiology to help clinical practice deepen and mm. and work more help clients work with their brains and so right now i'm working a ton with relationship i always work with uh through a lens of understanding how the implicit memory system mm-hmm. shifts and so memory reconsolidation which is a phenomenon of the brain not any kind of therapy is of course uh, one of the pieces that I would focus on. And and I talk a lot about uh, how boundary work uh, can help us increase uh, our, our ability to show up really well in relationship and end up creating earned secure attachment experiences. Mm. So... Yeah. So I do, I'm kind of, I have a lot of threads. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. What that means. No kidding. Yeah. Yeah. And I, so I teach about half my time now is, is teaching clinicians. Oh, very cool. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah. I would love to get into the boundaries discussion too, um, at mm-hmm. some point during this, this episode, because yeah. I think that's a huge topic, but maybe to begin with, could you just kind of describe like, what is interpersonal neurobiology and, and what sure. does that work look like? Sure. Well, interpersonal neurobiology is the study of how a brain mind and relationships are actually all intertwined and thinking when i think about neurobiology versus neuroscience um you know you could ask a bunch of researchers and each one will have their own kind of unique definition of those of the difference between them but if i were going to differentiate them what i would say is neuroscience usually is studying a very specific kind of finite process and that's super super helpful and then our neurobiology studies look more at ooh if we know that really cool very small thing about this part of the brain then how does that uh, make the brain systems function together. So mm-hmm. I'm a little bit more leaning into, oh, what do we know about energy and information flow patterns in the brain? Yeah. And how can we work with that knowledge to help folks partner with their brains in ways that's really helpful? Yeah, yeah. And then in the context of kind of attachment and relationships, how to understand. Exactly. So we all of our brains are open dynamic complex systems. And all that means is that it can be changed on the inside. So your brain can Mm. change itself. So if you have a thought, and then you shift that thought to a different thought, you're going to change your neurochemistry. So you can change Mm. you inside of you. Mm -hmm. And because you're also an open system, you actually can influence other systems and you can be influenced by other systems. Yeah. So when we're talking about the interpersonal part, we're talking about how relationship changes the brain, just like how we can use our mind to change the brain and how that brain, right, instrument could support shifts in both the mind and relationship. So I think it's um, all very, very, very interconnected. Yeah. So it's it's saying we can't separate them. So let's even stop trying to think about them as separate. And how do they all relate to each other and shift each other? Mm-hmm. Which I know can sound like a big mouthful. <laughs> no, no, but it it definitely makes sense. And what the first thing that popped up for me was mm-hmm. when you talked about how relationships can change the brain. Something I've talked about a lot on this podcast, and actually even before I learned about memory reconsolidation, is the idea of having like corrective emotional experiences and relationships that then can help without like earned mm-hmm. secure attachment. So would that be an example? Like basically? Yeah. Well, I love this question. Let me dial, let me drill down into a really uh, big detail about yeah. language. So corrective experiences versus disconfirming experiences. And you can use them, they can, one can become the other, but not always. And so I think it might be helpful for folks listening Mm. to understand there's a little bit of a difference. So I think about, um, I think about how your, your experience in life could be built like a layer cake and you keep adding these new experiences. And some of our experiences are really hard. Maybe that layer of cake has a really gnarly flavor to it. It's hard, hard, hard. And maybe we have a corrective experience with somebody new and it puts on a lovely strawberry layer onto our cake. And that is awesome. Mm -hmm. It's great. And it's not going to change the gross layer. Mm -hmm. Because it's not actually, it's not held in a way that's disconfirming. So it's like new experience and over time slowly especially if you have lots of new really good experiences in therapy or in a relationship you can build a landscape around you where your even your lower brain really gets oh it's okay now Hmm. Um, so i love corrective experiences and when we're talking about memory reconsolidation it's more like an embodied moment I hold an old experience and a new experience or a different experience that doesn't have to be new. Right. I hold two pieces of knowledge together simultaneously. And when I do, ooh, my brain gets subjectively, right? Nobody from the outside can tell me it has to be true on the inside for me, that I get subjectively, oop, both those things cannot mm-hmm. be true at the same time. Mm-hmm. And that creates 
something, the fancy word for it is network lability, but it just means poof, that network opened up and is now flexible to new learning. So you can, you could have a new experience with a partner now and, and that corrective experience, right? And then you could experientially compare it to old learning, old prediction. Right. Be times that were harder. If you did that in an embodied way simultaneously right now, now you have a disconfirm. Right. But if you were not actively predicting the bad, but just added the good, I'd qualify that more as a corrective experience. Does that make sense how I'm separating those out? Yep. Yep. Yeah. The, which is why when you're doing memory reconsolidation and you're looking for those disconfirmations, a lot of the times you're pulling on experiences that have already happened in the past, but just haven't been integrated in that way to actually compared right at the right right moment. They just weren't accessed simultaneously. That's the real trick to it. Right. 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 Okay. No, that's an important distinction. So can you talk a little bit about, so how, how can relationships change the brain? What are the ways that you see our relationship experiences changing our brains? Every, everything. Yeah. Every, I mean, that we're such an interconnected species. That's really our primary survival strategy. So I don't think there's a moment that relationship is not changing your brain in, in some small way. Mm-hmm. Um, and it could be for the better and it could be for the worse. It depends on what you're experiencing. So um, I, I don't think there's a moment where we're not open to the potential influence from other people. And sometimes what's going to be happening is we'll kind of be looking through, I call them our history colored glasses. Mm. The brain is wearing history colored glasses. And so maybe I'm making a prediction of something bad and I predicted it so big and I'm so locked into that vision that my history colored glasses made me uh, unable to see the new. That's totally possible. And so then we're maybe hoping this relationship will change our brain for us. Mm. (laughs) And it needs a little bit of, of, of curiosity about whether that lens is coloring us in order to take in the new, right? Because otherwise Mm -hmm. we can get into some, it's commonly called confirmation bias. Right. Um, So, so one thing I, I think feels really true to me when I deeply, deeply study both the neuroscience and the neurobiology is that like any open dynamic complex system, our brains are actually in constant flow and change Mm -hmm. in minor ways and sometimes in major ways. So I, I think there's no way to be in relationship with someone and not be having influence come in. So think about this little detail. This is this is a funny neuroscience detail. So the bottom of your brain, your brainstem, the medulla oblongata, which is the very, very bottom of your brainstem, mm-hmm. takes in about 11 million bits of information per second. Wow. Yeah. That's a lot. Yep. <laughs> and then the salience neural network filters some of that out so that by the time it gets to the more conscious part of your mind, way up in that prefrontal cortex, you're now processing somewhere between five and 60 bits of information per second. Mm. So the amount of information your lower brain is taking in at various levels of that lower brain, your subcortical brain isn't taking in quite as much as your medulla oblongata, but lots, lots more than that more conscious brain. You're not going to stop being influenced by other people. You can't Mm -hmm. be, but you, you would also be influenced if you we're living away and didn't talk to anybody. Right. <laughs> loneliness is influential too. Isolation. Yeah. Right. So there's, think about this. You don't live with a brain that can avoid being influenced by your environment. And mm. if relationships are part of your environment, you'll be influenced by that. And if relationships are not part of your environment, you'll be influenced by that. I guess yeah. I'm wondering what's that even like to hear as we're talking about it? Yeah. Yeah. Well, it, it is making me think about, because I work with um, mostly clients with attachment trauma and attachment trauma has been my focus. What I was thinking about when you were talking about that was actually kind of, um, you know, people that really self-isolate or have those more like avoidant kind of protective Mm -hmm. patterns, but that, Mm -hmm. that is still 
affecting us that it's like when we try to get away from you know because we have these like negative implicit associations with what it means to be relational and connect but then even when we try to like detach and disconnect from that we're still being influenced by that lack of yes there's no way you get out of influence yeah yeah sorry we can't actually close yeah (laughs) isn't that hard news though right I really get the adaptation that like I just don't want to be hurt anymore yeah it makes so much sense to me. Of yeah. course you don't. Mm-hmm. And and if I really sit in the reality of the biology, oof. Yeah. We we live with brains that are open. Yeah. So there is no such thing as no influence. Mm-hmm. It's so 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 hard to, mm-hmm. for, especially for folks who have been really really deeply hurt. Yeah. Complex trauma folks and but we have folks with pretty deep attachment injury. That's really hard news. Yeah. 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 At the same time though, I feel like there is something that is more um like hopeful or beautiful about that because it just mm-hmm. reminds me of like our nature as mammals and that, mm-hmm. you know, I, I end up having those conversations with people a lot too, where it's like, as much as I want to just totally close off this part of me mm-hmm. that craves attachment, it's so wired into like the essence of my being as a <laughs> right? mammal. And, and in some ways that's great news yeah. because your brain is just as open to influence and potential change today as it always has been. And so mm-hmm. if you are in contact with someone who is, um, as you move into that seeking space and and risk connection, and then that bid for connection is met, that changes your brain too. So mm-hmm. I think it's hopeful information. Yes. Even though it's also oof, sometimes hard. I think it's a mixed bag. Yes, I agree. <laughs> Definitely a mixed bag. And then the other image I got when you were talking about how much mm. information our brain is taking in, it's almost this like filtration system, right? Where yes. we're taking in so much, but then the lower brain is is kind of filtering out, you know, what gets right. communicated. Right. So the salience neural network, which don't think of it as a thing that has a location because it's kind of spread out throughout the brain, but think of it more as like the way our brain chooses what is most relevant um, to go ahead and let into our conscious awareness because our conscious awareness, the parts of our brain that do that are so slow, they can't actually process the data that's being processed on the faster end in the more subcortical parts of the brain. So a lot of people have experienced this if you've ever been kind of searching for uh, buying something new, like maybe you wanted to buy a new car and you were kind of researching which kind you wanted. And then all of a sudden you start seeing that car everywhere on the road. That was your salience Mm. network going, hmm. Jules wants a Honda CRV. Right, right. She's been looking at that. I guess that's relevant data. I guess I'll let that through. <laughs> right, and then that's why you're like, suddenly I'm seeing this car Honda everywhere. Honda CRV is everywhere. Yeah. <laughs> totally. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's a that's a really simple example of how the salience neural network works. Right. It's, it's marking for emotionally relevant information and letting that through. Right. But then in terms of like attachment stuff, is that where our kind of our predictive models or those history colored glasses start getting in the way, right? You got it. Yeah. Is now I, I am, I'm very aware of the things that have caused me pain. And so I'm kind of on the lookout Mm -hmm. for other stuff that has caused me pain. Mm -hmm. Now, once we know this though, once we understand that the salience neural network works this way, we can set it up so that our are we are basically going to ask our salience neural network to look for moments Hmm. of security Hmm. or moments of kindness maybe or moments of connection Hmm. whatever it is you're looking for you could actually mark that as emotionally potent experientially and then your salience neural network will go to work looking for what you're asking it to look for and so how, what does that look like that process? Yeah. So let's say I'm working with a couple. So I do about half my work is with, um, individuals and half my works with couples. And because okay. I do specialize in trauma and complex trauma, I, even in my couples, one or both people usually have some pretty complex histories. Yeah. Um, so let's say I'm working with a couple and this couple, one of the members of them, it for really, really good reason, given the history, expects to be dropped mm. emotionally, expects for emotions to be passed over, expects for for emotions to be turned away from. 
mm-hmm. right? They had an experience early on where, where lots of folks around them, and especially primary caregivers, kind of ignored any kind of emotional content. So that, that's the expectation they're kind of walking in with. So maybe during the couple experience, mm-hmm. there's a moment where their partner shows up and is actually really curious or interested in mm-hmm. the emotional landscape. And as we slow down and just see what, what's happening inside your body as, as your partner's asking for that, they start telling me, well, it feels kind of scary, but also kind of good. Mm-hmm. Is that something that maybe we want to have a little bit more of in this, in this relationship? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that would be really helpful for me. Okay. So now the client is, I always, I always, I'm very client centered. So I always lean into my, my client's wisdom about what's right for them and what's wrong for them. Mm -hmm. So, so let's say this client is telling me, yep, yep. I want more of that. And then we want to slow down. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to spend at least 30 seconds or so really expanding our awareness of exactly what that feels like in the body. Mm -hmm. Right. And, and then just asking inside, oh, could you help me find more moments where this is already happening? Mm. And, and I've now I've set it up. Now I do that two or three days in a row, just like if you were searching for cars on the internet, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I do that two or three days in a row where I spend a significant amount of time kind of deepening into the memory of that experience. And all of a sudden my salience neural network will be scanning my partner for other experiences that look really similar to that. Hmm. that they could be categorized in the same way. Right, right. That is so neat. Yeah, mm-hmm. that's really cool. Because a lot mm-hmm. of the times what I find is that, you know, because of, of that history, it's almost easy to like skip over those yes. those moments of yes, something new exactly. happening. Mostly we aren't on the lookout for that. Mostly we're on the lookout for things that might cause us pain, not things that'll go better. <laughs> right. Right. Especially for those who have a harder history. That's really, really normal. Yeah. So, yeah. So, so being able to, um, being able to train kind of our lower brain, it's like, it's, I don't think of it as training that feels like to, um, I don't mean to treat your brain like a pet. I mean, um, I I don't know. My, my, my dog would probably go, I don't know. We have a very good relationship. (laughs) (laughs) Um, but I mean like really be in relationship with our, our lower brain and mm-hmm. just and just leaning into trusting how that lower brain functions. Yeah. And we could say, oh, thanks. I'll work with you. Right. This is great. Let me mm-hmm. help you out, Salience Network, to to help you know a little bit more about what I'm looking for. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. So with the the whole kind of concept of like emotional learnings and attachment, mm-hmm. would you mm-hmm. say that our our attachment patterns and our experiences of attachment are mostly entirely informed by those like um, those emotional learnings, those implicit yeah. learnings? Yeah, I would say so. So what I would what I would say about my understanding of attachment and as I work with it in the room a lot um, is that. Uh, the attachment system is holding um, uh, two things. One is a natural seeking of connection mm. that's driven out of the ventral tegmental area in the midbrain. So there's a dopaminergic influence that we seek. We, we are looking for things that, uh, that help us out. And um, sometimes, you know, you've heard about dopamine being involved in addiction and things like that. And and certainly that's part of it. But most of your dopaminergic energy is used to help you get out of bed in the morning and Mm -hmm. help you reach goals and search for stuff that works for you. So Mm -hmm. one of the first times it's going to be turning on is actually towards connection because that's going to help us meet needs. So you are seeking kind eyes from the moment of birth. Mm. this is you you have you have the ability to um uh see uh and start reading uh even small muscle movements around people's eyes you're not you're not creating a focus like you can't see eyes as an infant like you and i can see eyes now but um it's still your your whole attachment system is face seeking eye seeking 
Wow. Wondering right. how those are going to be greeted really literally from the moment you're born. Yeah. So we're, we're in that space seeking connection and over that first few years of life, especially in those first two years, um, but even up into age five, we're kind of laying down a map of what to expect in relationship. And particularly when we're talking about attachment and attachment distress, like so insecure attachment styles, what we're talking about is, ooh, we learn to expect certain things when a relationship has emotional stress. So mm-hmm. if I have more secure attachment, probably what I what I experienced, oh no, can you hear that or can it just me? Oh, it sounds fine. Oh, good, 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 good. My daughter got a call on her phone and it rang through mine for some reason. Oh, okay. Um, <laughs> so where was I? Oh yeah, I was talking about the, so the attachment system, what we're, what we're uh, looking at is these teeny tiny experiences where if you have secure attachment, you're going to be looking for people to have relatively flexible, not always perfect, relatively stable, not always perfect, <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Responses to stress. And if that happened, and there were a bunch of different ways people responded to stress around me, and mostly they were flexible and stable, and certainly they were not always perfect, then I end up trusting me to handle it when people don't show up, and I end up trusting you to be mostly dependable. Oh, that's such a good way of saying it, right? Yeah, it's not mm-hmm. It's not that we expect perfection, but it's kind of like people are mostly going to be there, and when they're not, I'm going to uh, be okay. I'm going to be okay. I can handle my stuff, right? Yeah. So we have... And these are thousands of micro experiences mm. over the course of a few years, right? Mm. And now we're going to, our brain is going to lay down basically a map that says, oh, this is what I expect during stress. And then maybe some other kiddos grow up in a world where um, mostly the parents ignored emotion. Mm. Let's say that's what happened. They ignored mm-hmm. emotion that um, there was a lot of, oh, you don't really feel sad about that. Mm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe, especially when they're under stress, parents shut down a little bit or turn away a little bit when emotional stress shows up. Yeah. Then what do I expect? I expect I can only depend on myself. I expect sharing emotions isn't really helpful. Yeah. So I'm making a prediction. So it's basically an emotional learning about how this relationship, how relationships in general are going to be functioning when Mm -hmm. a little bit of stress is added to the system Mm -hmm. versus if we have more of that anxious, preoccupied style, um, that may be, I learned a lot about unpredictability. Yeah. And maybe I learned that sometimes, maybe even a lot, taking care of your needs got my needs more met. So I mm. expect a little bit of emotional unfairness in relationship. Mm. I expect to be mm-hmm. needing to take care of other people. I expect that stressful moments will go better if I can guess really well what's happening in your mind and take care of you first. Right. right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I tend to be really focused, especially when stuff is hard in relationship or I feel a little worried in relationship. I'm going to be really focused on what's happening in your mind. Mm-hmm. But all of that's emotional learning, right? Yeah. And then our more disorganized or unresolved, we might have experienced fear in some way. Maybe the mm. parent was scary or maybe the parent was scared. Mm. So the baby's going to match a parental emotion. Mm. And so maybe that's really confusing feeling or scary feeling. Yeah. Now when, when emotion, when I, when emotional stress comes up in relationship, when any kind of stress happens in the environment, I actually expect potentially to be very, very frightened or even to experience danger. Mm-hmm. And so these are just predictions. And I'm one of those folks who thinks of us as having an attachment quilt rather than oh, attachment style. I love that. I haven't heard that term before attachment quilt. Yeah. That's how I try to describe it to students and, and the folks I work with, the people who come into my office. I don't think you have one attachment style. You probably have lots of attachment experiences and mm. you have these four colors in your quilt. Mm-hmm. And some of us have a lot of one color and some of us have a ton of mixed. <laughs> and so I, I like to help people get to really get to know their attachment quilts 
so that they can know what they're predicting. Because once we know what we're predicting, we could actually use those corrective experiences to have a disconfirm. Yes, yes. And I the imagery of the quilt, I feel like shows the diversity of our attachment landscapes too, yes. right? That it can be like kind of all these different experiences that get stitched mm -hmm. together to create these kind of, you know, sophisticated mm -hmm. predictions instead of just, exactly. I, I just had a guess like, last week where we were talking about how people will really oversimplify, you know, attachment where it's like, you're either anxious or you're avoidant and avoidant is like this and anxious is like this. Oh and so gosh, that I'm just helps so like, glad to hear that. Yeah. Yeah. I'm one of those who's, who's trying to, um, uh, spread the word as well. About, yeah. Uh, this idea that you fit into a certain category doesn't feel like it matches what I experience in my own body from my own history. It doesn't yeah. feel like it matches what I experience with my people. And, and yeah, that's so exciting. I'm so glad you, you and your folks are already talking about that. Yeah. I'm definitely going to borrow that language with the, the quilt. Cause that feels oh, really accurate. Do. Yeah. Right. And when I'm, when I'm really driven by that one color, whoo, mm -hmm. I'm going to be on the lookout for <laughs> needing yeah. to take care of you, or I'm going to be on the lookout for my emotions don't matter. Just shut down. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So what does earning secure attachment look like? Right. Using all of the, all of this right. neurobiology, using, how do you approach that? Using all of this, what I think about is I think about having, having supporting reconsolidation experiences. So mm -hmm. I might support those in the therapy room and I might support those with folks um, just, just that they set these up out in their lives. Mm -hmm. um, they, so the folks I'm working with, once they kind of learn how to do it, they can have lots of these experiences outside the therapy room as well. Um, I really want, I always want to drive home to people when I'm talking about memory reconsolidation, that's just the name neuroscientists have given to a natural phenomenon of the brain. When I utilize the, the neuroscience therapeutically, I'm creating a therapy space that supports the natural reconsolidation mm. experience. But I do not create memory reconsolidation because that's mm. not in my, I can't do that. <laughs> that mm. it, I'm supporting a space where that natural phenomenon of the brain is a little bit more likely to happen. Mm. Um, so I don't think of it as like a therapy technique. I think I have therapy techniques or skills or even philosophies or ways of being in the room that right. allows the the brains to be a little bit more uh, uh tuned in to the that possibility yeah 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 so how well we do it is is i want an an expectation of one of the bad versions right the not so great versions mm -hmm. the really sticky versions <laughs> However we want it, what language lands for you in your body, use that. I want that expectation up and alive in the body while another person acts in a way that's actually secure. Mm -hmm. And if those two things happen simultaneously and however that security um, is showing up, uh, however that secure response is showing up, is enough of a direct mismatch for what the expectation was. Mm. Um, and that's subjective to the client. Sometimes people ask me like, okay, so what exact things should I have the person do? I'm like, ooh, I can't answer that right, question. Right, right. And it's actually as unique as a fingerprint. And so- <laughs> It is, no, it totally is. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So I can't, mm -hmm. I can't guess for that. But what I can do is say, ooh, like, so let's say I have a couple in my office and, um, uh, uh, let's say a partner, Linda is expecting her wife, Anne to turn away and reject her. Mm. And she, uh, really has that up and alive in her body. And we know we, we can even prep it. We can even know she's going to expect and that you're going to turn away but but linda we're going to just see if she does mm. we're going to let you expect that and just see if she does and what ann does instead is holds her hand and says tell me more mm. right yeah and in that moment i watched that whew, that sign that network hit lability is what it's called it's basically a surprise mm. let's say in that moment whew, 
Linda kind of reels back and her eyes go a little wide. I say, oh yeah, what just happened? Mm -hmm. <laughs> What's happening inside? Well, I really didn't think she could do that. Mm. Oh, okay, so of course you didn't think she could do that. Of course you expected her to turn away. And Anne, can you tell her again? Are you here? Do you really want to hear more? Mm -hmm. Don't don't tell her it's not true if it's not true. Tell tell her tell her what's actually true in you. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? So yeah, I'm going to support a repeat. So once the network hits lability, um, once it opens up to a flexible new learning, it basically said this thing is always true. Oh no, wait, it's not always true. Oh, okay, right. I need to update my learning now. It's open to take it in. It stays open for about four hours. So I try mm -hmm. to repeat the original experience mm -hmm. um, pretty often within that four hour period. And you know where I see clinicians get a little bit sticky here and, and clients get a little bit sticky here is that we've done that really successfully. And then the other person wants to go right away, but I'm still in a four hour network club. Oh, yeah. openness. Like, um, skip it. Wait until tomorrow. Mm -hmm. <laughs> wait mm -hmm. until wait until the next session. Wait until the next time, which can be can be disappointing and hard to hold. But um, it really it really does make it more successful. Yeah. Yeah. If we don't muddy the waters while we're doing this this work it's kind of like whose turn is it in this moment right right um so yeah. when you're talking about like um them them being able to kind of go and create more opportunities for those moments outside of therapy is mm -hmm. that just kind of like when someone knows what it's like to have that that mismatch experience mm -hmm. then kind of practicing what you were talking about of like providing opportunities to notice it's that exactly, mismatch. Exactly. Okay. And then let's say we were working on Linda's mismatch, for example, mm -hmm. we would actually come up with a keyword because one of the things that's really, really helpful is if Linda is holding a little bit of mindful awareness mm -hmm. that she is expecting bad. Mm -hmm. And so we ask her to define when the mismatch moment should happen for herself, not mm -hmm. Anne. Because if Anne does okay. it just randomly, it will absolutely be one of those um, uh, layer cake correct right. experiences. It won't be a disconfirm. Mm. Linda needs to tell us when she's ready for a disconfirm. And needs to tell her partner, needs to tell and needs Anne. to tell her partner. Okay. Yeah, exactly. Okay. So we'll come up with a keyword. And right. I let them t come up with their own keyword. So I'm thinking mm. of um, a couple I was working with and they, they came up with the keyword octopus. Because they don't usually say that word. Just make it weird. Yeah. <laughs> right. It has to be a word you're not usually saying. And so yeah. let's imagine that's Linda and Anne's keyword. So let's imagine Linda says octopus and Anne knows in that moment, oh, this is when I turn towards her. And maybe they've agreed on a phrase to use, but probably not. Maybe they've just agreed on an essence of mm. a thing. Mm -hmm. Right. Maybe they've agreed on a particular way of turning towards. Yeah. Um, then that the the turning towards is the important piece. And yeah. even when that moment becomes rumbly, remember, we're not looking for perfection. Mm. Secure attachment isn't perfect. Secure attachment is a little bit bumbly, right? Not always perfect, but flexible and stable enough. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> right. So I actually really encourage my folks to say yes to the bumbling nature of it. Mm, I love that. So that they can take in the variation. Yeah. And not only, oh, it has to be exactly the opposite of. Yeah. Yeah. So in that moment, like basically the code word is saying, Hey, I'm in, I'm in that moment where I'm predicting this negative I'm, response and exactly. I'm needing, you know, this care from you, but also understanding that the partner might not always have the perfect response, but kind of determining what is that safe enough response that's exactly. gonna. exactly Okay. And I mm -hmm. might even support Anne and not feeling trapped and say, well, you know, when she says octopus, you could go, oh my gosh, I wish I could be here. I do not have the bandwidth, sweetie. I will swing right. back to you. Give me 20 minutes. Right, right. And even that is not the same as the expected. Right, right. <laughs> right, yeah. so I want to make sure neither partner, I'm, I'm um, because I'm, I do study uh, post-traumatic stress, symptoms and, and disorder and complex trauma, I'm, I'm actually pretty careful with my folks 
um, in helping them really explore what makes them feel trapped. Because mm -hmm. if you want to, if you want to make a trauma response, <laughs> make a system feel trapped and then a little bit alone and threatened. Mm -hmm. um, so it's one of my ways to help us um, create spaces where we're not so likely to create uh, harm or tra trauma, yeah. trauma type experiences is to really be careful about how we can both move through this and not feel trapped while we're doing it. Yeah. Yeah. That makes so. Okay. I have a little, little bit of a, a complicated question for you here. Cause yeah. my mind's like going off from I love all of complicated this. <laughs> questions. Or maybe it's not, but it feels complicated in, in my mind right now. But so mm -hmm. what would you suggest for people who have isolated themselves so much that it's really hard to find people that can kind of practice, you know, this, mm -hmm. this intentional, because what I love about this is that, right, it's, it's really using the memory reconsolidation in this interpersonal context right. where you have two people kind of working together to be like, yes. let's create these changes. Right. Um, and I guess I'm thinking of people that either have, have really isolated themselves where they're really lacking those close, you know, intimate relationships, mm -hmm. or maybe people where they, you know, a lot of the people in their life are really not like willing or interested in doing this kind of intentional work. Yeah. Um, yeah. so for those people <laughs> listening, yeah, it's like, what, yep. you know, how, what does healing, I mean, look like, and is there still hope for people that feel Absolutely. isolated in that way? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, there is. And, and it's hard. Um, so yeah. one is I lean into, uh, the universality of it. So hmm. when, when we're creating attachment, um, uh, knowings, those emotional learnings that really make up that attachment quilt, there is, um, an automatic, you cannot stop this from happening. There's an, hmm. all relationships are like this. Hmm. Experience. Right. The generalizing and kind it's of globalization. Exactly. Yeah. That's exactly what I meant when I yeah. was talking about universality. I was like, yep, yeah, it's globalized experience. Right. So one thing you can do is as you're thinking about maybe moving back into connection is, is, well, one, if you have a therapist, you can ask them to play part of that role, but do not mm. think that one hour a week is enough. And I get right. that and it's not, and you're right. And you're right. But what we could also do is start looking out. We can set that salience neural network up to start looking for evidence of even bumbly moments that mm. looked okay, kind of, that people were kind of sticking in there with each other mm. out in the world. Mm. Right. So it doesn't need to be that we're looking for the most romantic connection or the most kind connection we've right. ever seen but more like, whew, look at people rumbling through life and kind of hanging in there with each other mm. can start to set your network up for a little bit more openness mm -hmm. to kind of a varied relational experience. And then when you, when you do feel ready, you, even if you have somebody in your life, maybe you have somebody who's close to you, but isn't really into this stuff and doesn't really want to talk about it. You could still, um, start looking for, it's like, I'm going to open up my psychological boundary to let in a little bit more information of any time they show up in that good enough category mm -hmm. and start to really define for yourself what are all the varied versions of good enough? Because mm. I bet there are a lot of them. And so I think, I think it's, it, it's so individual. I don't know how to tell you exactly what to look for. Yeah. But, yeah. But I'm thinking of, of somebody I've worked with who um, did a lot of work actually. He, so he was pretty isolated, but he did a lot of work with his pup finding he had a dog. And so finding lots of kindness yeah. um, and kind eyes moments from, from his pup and then going out into the world and just noticing how people greeted each other in the world hmm. was really helpful. And then he did yeah. feel after a little while of doing that, he did feel a little bit more comfortable in, in sort of starting to reach out right. and find um, other folks to start having friendship connections with. He wasn't yeah. ready for romantic connection, but, but friendship connections felt more okay. And even kind of limited at first. And that was, 
and and taking in okay so we were expecting that to go kind of badly and then it didn't mm-hmm. <laughs> and then it went okay mm-hmm. and so really letting both those experiences i think the hard part is letting both the prediction of bad and the not so bad happen simultaneously yeah i think what we do is we try to push away our expectation of bad mm. and when we try to push away our expectation of bad we don't let it up enough that we're yeah. actually making that prediction and then there's no prediction error and then there's no reconsolidation right right so i think it's it's tough <laughs> right and and i just want to be an advocate for really deeply possible yeah no i love and i love that you mentioned the relationship with the dog because i totally find that animals can be like the first experience of safe Mm -hmm. attachment Mm -hmm. for people that are in that in that state of isolation it's like yeah i'm experiencing like a secure attachment with my dog so my nervous system is getting some little taste of what that feels like exactly and i think horses if you're interested um in equine therapy oh yeah or just being with horses they're particularly helpful when it comes to help you know how you're affecting other people in relationship mm. and are very very open you know to to developing relationships yeah. with folks so i think that's that's a really good resource as well i yeah yes yeah cuz it i i find that there's almost it's like we're asking people to take these little risks in order to get mm-hmm. those disconfirmations right it's like it is. To, in, it in is order to risk. open yourself <laughs> up you have to like do this little I, I used to do a lot of um indoor rock climbing and mm. it's like when you when you're climbing up on the wall you're strapped into a belay and when you're ready to come down from the wall you have to just kind of sit back in your harness and mm. it's like this little trust fall feeling because yes. you're like I feel like I'm literally about to like plummet down you know to the mm-hmm. ground but then the the belay catches you and you're kind of like slowly put down on the ground and when I did that I was like I feel like this is this is like a, a physical embodiment of what it's like to take those attachment risks it's like oh I'm gonna do this like little trust fall but then you know when you take those little risks and you can experience being caught you know instead of kind of falling to your death you build that trust over time but it's like to even get to that point where you're ready to to take those little risks can be so hard yeah exactly and you know what else i think is really really helpful as we're talking about it is is building some self-trust that Mm. when you do risk and you fall like you're not Mm. caught that you can be deeply kind and have a secure attachment with yourself. Yeah. So I think Mm. sometimes some of the biggest work is shifting that relationship between you and you to really deeply trust you'll be okay. It's, it's more okay to take the risk if I can trust me to be with me. Well, if I fall down. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm glad you mentioned that too. Cause it's like, I, I always want to be realistic when mm-hmm. I'm doing this work with people that, yeah, you might actually be disappointed by someone at oh, some point. It's like, you're I'm right. No, yeah, not just my, I'm actually going to guarantee it. <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's right. It's like, we're, we yeah. are going to, you know, fall sometimes be disappointed, be hurt. And so, yeah. How do, how do we have that internal experience of security where we can kind of like catch ourselves and hold ourselves in those moments? Exactly. I mean, my partner and I've been together for 17 years now mm-hmm. and and um, we both have have uh, attachment quilts with lots of color. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and and I promise you, I, even though I do this for a living, even though I know all this stuff, you know, on Tuesday I show up really well and on Thursday I might not. Yeah. <laughs> drop him. Yeah. You know, so he can't expect me to be 100% dependable. And I can't ex- expect because we have a kiddo and work and and it's you know, life and life and is hard life. And, and yeah we're humans right and i'm gonna mess it up so yeah. i don't think that discord and um needing repair and moments of bumbly are problems in a relationship i think that's yeah. features in a relationship yeah yeah and, and to do that earn secure means i trust you and me to handle the hard not yeah. to not have the hard Yes, I think that's such an important distinction. And to be able to repair those ruptures, Mm -hmm. right? Because I feel like that's also one of the features of a lot of of the insecure attachment that people grow up in is that these big, you know, ruptures happen and then there's no space to like talk about it or address mm-hmm. it or reconnect. It's like, you just kind of have to live, you know, with, with those mm-hmm. wounds. And so I talk about that a lot with people too, is like, yeah, when there are those disappointments and those letdowns, like 
being able to, you know, to both show up to move through that together can be so important. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's where boundaries comes in, I think. Oh, yes. We were going to talk about boundaries. Yeah, because I think, well, I think about boundaries as both internal and external. So when people say boundaries, a lot of times they mean like telling someone what's not okay. Right. <laughs> and that's true. And that's part of it. And I talk about that a lot when I talk about boundaries. Um, but I also um, talk about internal boundaries. Uh one is a, a psychological boundary where I protect you from my mind and I protect my mind from yours. And another one's a containing boundary where I have a pause that I add mm. between what I feel and what I do mm. in which I can double check that I'm showing up relationally, intentionally, like I would like, and in my own personal integrity in a way that feels really good to me. So, so I've, I help folks when I think about when I think about being really, really connected with someone else, I think about how important it is for us to be able to hold that we are different people with different minds who are going to mm. be deeply influential of each other, but not control each other. Mm. We can't actually, I can't get my husband to show up in a particular way. That's not a right. thing. Um, right. I can ask him. Yeah. <laughs> right. So I, I'm thinking about how we could um, build a landscape in which our, our respect for each other and our kindness for each other, even when we're experiencing the same moment really, really differently, mm. could bring more curiosity and connection then it has to, you know, sometimes we'll go into a space where that's really wounding or a space where um, it feels like I have to defend myself against you when those, when those differences show up. And I don't, I don't think that's actually necessary because your mentalization and neural network, which is a part of your subcortical brain, is um, making constant guesses about what's happening in the other person. Um, but it also is very capable in, in seeing them as different from you and not threatening. And so if we can tap mm. into that neural network, which is a lot of what my psychological boundary work is about, if we can tap into that neural network and really add some protection. Um, do you know uh, the book Sand Talk by Tyson Yonkoporta? No, I haven't heard of oh, that. It's a phenomenal book, but I'm going to quote him. Okay. It's from, it's from his book. And I'm not going to quote him perfectly. Please forgive me for those who are young Caporta fans out there. Um, uh, he talks about the word safety. He says, it's such a funny word. We don't use that word. He's a, he's a guy who's from Australia mm. and, and some, he has a PhD. So he has like one foot in kind of Western world, but he also has a foot in, in Aboriginal world. So mm, mm -hmm. he's an Aboriginal guy and he says, we don't, we don't use that word safety. We use the word protection because mm. we think safety is not a thing. Absolute <laughs> safety doesn't exist, but what does exist is protection. He says, I protect my woman when she protects me. I protect my kids. I protect my elders. They protect me. That we, that we are, we're honoring of each other's needs for protection. Wow. And so mm. I think about it as like, I protect my mind from your mind. Mm. And I protect mm. your mind from my mind. Mm. So that when you're feeling something that might feel a little bit scary to me, I have enough protection between us that I'm not so scared. And now right. I can lean in with curiosity about why you're feeling the way you're feeling mm. and not mm. leave you when you're feeling this way. Yeah. 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 Wow. Yeah. That that's, I love that, that quote. And that feels like a really, like a much more, I, I'm going to say like kind of sophisticated, like view of, of boundaries. Cause I think, yeah, a lot of the times the way that boundaries are discussed, it's, it's much more material and it's much mm -hmm. more just about, you know, kind of actions and behaviors. Whereas this is about more of like an internal 
yes. state of being and and having that that respect for like we are different people having different experiences and like what does that what does that mean what in this that relationship? Mean to me? Yeah, how can I actually connect with you even though you're different than me? Right, right. How could I how could I show you I actually care about your experience? Yeah. Well, here's the truth of it: is if I'm really scared of your experience. What's going to happen is my brain's going to move into a slightly less integrated state. So mm -hmm. think about it like this. Int integration just means how, how much are the different systems in your brain cross-communicating, mm -hmm. right? So the, the more, uh, well, let me say it like this. Um, when you perceive a lot of protection, safety, safe enough, whatever word works for you, right um when i perceive i'm relatively okay my brain goes oh cool we have plenty of time then to do all this cross communication so it's actually a time assessment mm -hmm. so if i guess i'm mostly okay then my brain will go cool we got a lot of time i'll do the more nuanced high communication version and my brain will become more integrated mm -hmm. and then if i'm guessing oh, nope this is not okay. I am not perceiving okayness right now. Mm -hmm. <laughs> then my brain will go, got it. We need speed. Speed mm. helps when we're not okay. Mm. And so it'll go, don't worry, I gotcha. I will become less integrated because that cross communication really slows me down. So then I'm going to lean into my subcortical system and go for old protective behaviors, old adaptations. Right. I'm going to show up the way it worked best in the old times so that I can do it without thinking. Yeah. And so um, when we want to be, if I'm having a really rumbly conversation with my partner, it is sure helpful. Um, I'm not, I don't like to say better or worse than, I, I don't think about it like that. I just think it helps mm -hmm. if I can have that more nuanced version. And so if I can have an image and I don't, I don't tell people what their boundary image should be, but if I can have an image that really gets, oh, some of what he's saying is about him and his experience mm. and not about me and my experience. Right. Right. It can discern, oh, what's about me and not about me. What's true mm. and not true for me. Mm -hmm. And if it's, if it's not true for me, it's not about me, then I'm not going to let it in, but I am going to be really curious about what's going on. Over yeah. There. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Now I added that protection and because the protection is there, my brain actually stays more integrated. Right. Right. And I, it's almost like boundaries are boundaries are one form of protection whereas yes. these kind of those old protective methods are also forms of protection yes. but they're they're forms of protection that tend to more so perpetuate like the cycle of disconnection or dysregulation right. instead of like security right they don't they don't support connected so like recently yeah. i wrote i've written a book called setting boundaries at stick and the and the subtitle of it is how neurobiology can help you rewire your brain to feel safe connected and empowered Mm. And, and the reason I really want to emphasize boundaries in, in a, my work as a, as a relational therapist and as a, as a person who does complex trauma stuff is that so many of us had experiences where it wasn't okay to protect ourselves and stay connected at the same time. Mm -hmm. But my thought is, is that we could create spaces within us where we can connect to ourselves more deeply right. and spaces between each other where we can connect to each other more deeply, even through really big differences. Yeah. Yeah. Which even that is such a, a powerful, you know, juxtaposition to, to be in a sp spot where it's like, I can protect myself and be connected to you yes. at the same time. Yes. That's what we want. Right. And that is actually part of secure attachment, right? Yeah. So when yeah. I think about how do I show up for my kiddo when she's having a hard time? So let's say we're in emotional stress moment. And let's say she does what a lot of kids do. My kiddo sure does this is mom right now. I hate you. Mm. <laughs> like, mm. yeah, you do <laughs> mm -hmm. because I did not give you that dessert. Right. So, yeah. <laughs> so if she's in that space of like, Rah! and she, the way she has the vocabulary that is available to her in this moment of distress could be potentially painful to mm. me. If I can have, so <laughs> I'll 
everybody has their own boundary image that knows discernment and listening with acceptance is what I call it. Can you listen with deep mm. curiosity and acceptance to this person you care about and their experience of life? And can you discern what you should take in and not take in so you keep yourself safe at the same time? So, so when I think about like everybody has their own image, I've never seen a person have the same image twice, by the way. Mm. Um, but mine is a, uh, a, uh, jello wall with pink sparkles in it i love it <laughs> so so that's what came to me and it seems to be really helpful so i i imagine and I, by the way i'm one of those folks who has um it, i i don't actually visualize well mm. uh at all so i don't see a jello wall with pink sparkles in it but i feel that that's true and so i more feel okay. it than see yeah, it yeah, but yeah. i'm just letting folks know oh she's doing this image work and i can't do image in my brain right there you're okay. okay don't worry about that's it that's good to know <laughs> right um so some people do really big image in their brain some people don't i'm one of those who doesn't so so i can just like feel it it's like this ooh, pink sparkle jello wall yay and and in that moment, I go, oh, yeah, she can't find words other than hating me for how upset she is and disappointed mm. she is and sad she is and angry she is in this moment. Mm. Well, I can be with that. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I can be with my kid when she's sad and angry. And yeah. then that, that protection lets me show up in a more flexible way, right? Yeah. A stable way. Yeah. And I can lean down and be with her and be like, oh, course, hon, you really want that dessert. This is super disappointing. And mm. I can start to give her other words, right? So how does she have those experiences with me is because I'm taking care of me so she doesn't have to. Mm. Mm -hmm. And I want to do the same thing for my partner. I yeah. want to take care of me and take care of him. And I want mm. him to take care of me and take care of him, right? Mm. When we both take care of each other and ourselves, we're more likely to be able to have these rumbly moments. Yeah, yeah. And get through them okay. Yeah. So an example of, because you were talking about when someone might basically, you know, experience something their partner's feeling as threatening, like it might, you know, be activating yes. what you're feeling or what you're experiencing. And that could be just based on those kind of family of origin patterns and implicit associations too, right? Of, oh, my, right. my partner is sad. And I learned in childhood that when someone is sad, it means they're going to shut me out or right. that kind of thing, right? Or they're going to get angry right. or they're going to need me to take care of them or they're going to totally collapse. My needs are going to be disregarded or there's exactly. some something dangerous about this for me. Yeah, exactly. And yeah. I don't want us to think about that as it comes up as a thought because it mm -hmm. sure doesn't. It comes up as an embodied a feeling. knowing. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, yes, I call it yes. your psychological floor. Because mm. you are going to walk on this like the floor you are walking on today, right now. And it is as unthought of and as real feeling as that. Yeah. It feels as the only truth that is, mm. is that solid thing underneath you. Mm. So I don't want us to think about this as like thoughts. In fact, when we find words for them, the words aren't even really the thing. Right. It's like wrap a cloak around the edge of the thing so that you can feel the shape of it. But the feeling itself is the thing that's making mm. the prediction. Mm. So it's that feeling we're going to be greeting. Yeah. Right. When we're doing a reconsolidation, it's not right. even really, the words are like, are like the way we can hold it. A little yeah. Bit. They're like a little guesstimation to yeah. kind of, you know, be able to they have kinda, some shared language about exactly. it. Exactly. Yeah. They show us the shape of the thing, but yeah. they don't actually show us the like real visceral. Ugh, right. Of it. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, so wow. we're working with subconscious stuff. So right. we all have to be, can we all give ourselves a big break? Yeah. <laughs> and be yep. a little patient and yep. a little kind to ourselves. Cause I for me, and and this is I'm just gonna share this about my own personal journey through this, is the more frequently I treat myself like a parent who has a secure attachment with me, mm -hmm. the more I am open to um all these moments that are disconfirming mm. truly disconfirming mm. to to show up for yourself like a parent who's securely attached to their their child their child exactly. yeah 
like mm -hmm. and it's got a lot of for me it's got a lot of of courseness in it i don't i guess i don't mean it i mean some people talk about reparenting and parts work and inner ones and i do all that stuff too yeah but i even think about it just like how i talk to me like of course mm. you feel this way right now this is super frustrating or of course you feel this way right now this is terrifying to reach yeah. out to him right now he's been closed off for a couple of days it may not go well of course you're mm. scared mm. I've got you if it doesn't go well, maybe we try anyway. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think that's lovely. And yeah, I think the, the way that um, these things play out in relationships is so fascinating because I, I mostly mm -hmm. do individual therapy. Mm -hmm. So I do a lot of like mapping out and understanding of one person's, you know, implicit inner landscape, mm -hmm. but then it's like in relationships, you know, where you have two people's implicit inner landscapes coming oh together gosh. and trying to work together. And yep. the more that I have these conversations, the more I'm like, I think that I would like, like to get more comfortable doing couples therapy because it is so cool. Both the, the complexity of how two people's inner worlds, you know, kind of bounce off each other, but then mm -hmm. also like you were talking about the opportunities for mutual healing when you kind of come together and, and both share that goal of, of, you know, creating those disconfirmations. That's exactly right. So for, because I do about 50, 50, I'm half and half. Um, I would say in general, attachment healing is uh, riskier feeling, but easier to do in couples therapy. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, totally. I can <laughs> um, see that. Yeah, because at least we have two partners who are hearing the same language. We're going to create shared language around it. We're going to we're going to create spaces where we both um, uh, can can explore this together. Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. Wow. Well, this has been so rich and and insightful. Before we start to wrap up, is there anything that we haven't talked about yet that you want to make sure we can touch on? Oh my gosh, we could talk for hours. And I know hours that's hours, <laughs> that's so what I'm feeling. <laughs> I, my guess, my guess is we we filled up people's bowls for now. Yeah, I am so delighted you asked me to do this. Thank you yeah. so much. Thank you so much for coming on. I just feel like all of these different interviews really build off each other, and it's like getting yeah. to hear all of these because I so the episode before this was with a couples therapist that does emotion focused therapy and so we talked oh, about a lot of a lot of this stuff and then right before that was my interview with Tori Olds where we were just going over kind of all the memory reconsolidation stuff so oh, I just feel so like great. I know I, it's been so so great getting to have so many people's voices on the podcast so I really really appreciate you you spending oh, your time here wonderful I'm so glad to do it and I yeah hope it, it helps people dive into some of the nuance of this stuff yeah. And then I know people are always curious about, um, if they can work with you or what. So I, I know sure. you have like trainings and stuff. Do you want to talk a little bit about? Sure. If you, if you go to my website, which is julianntaylorshore.com, um, you can also find me at clearaskind.com. They go to the same space. Um, you can, you can find out about my work, um, and delve in more there. Mm -hmm. um, I do training for therapists. I do workshops for couples. I do workshops for individuals. Um, I also do intensives and I have a wait list for those. So you can sign up there. I also, uh, yeah, I also have folks I can help you refer to, refer you to if you want help finding somebody. Um, Cause sometimes people can't wait that long for me, but and, and I have a book coming out December 1st, so feel free to, to check out that as well. Awesome. And I'll, I'll include all of those links in the podcast description so people can find them. So, yeah. okay. Thank you so much, Jules. I hope you have a good rest of your day. Oh, you too. Thanks so much. Bye. Bye.